1: Keep in mind that the dome itself doesn't have to be that high in relation to the outer ring. With commercial aircraft capping out at 10 miles and rockets less than 400, the dome would actually look more like a stadium roof, depending on how you wanted to display things like the sun, moon, and stars. An enclosed world with these type of safeguards
3: would be able to sustain an unknowing population for say, what,
1: 4,500 years? That was Flat Earth Superstar Mark Sargent talking about his unassailable intuition that the world is a flat disk underneath a giant sky dome. It's not, of course, but it does serve as a good segue to this week's episode, Robert Eisler versus the Flat Earth. Last week, we talked about where Eisler came from, covering the ins and outs of turn-of-the-century Jewish Vienna, his early philosophical work in the field of value theory, and that time in 1907 when he was arrested for art theft in Italy and committed to a sanitarium. This week, we will take a look at Eisler's first forays into the study of religion, beginning with his exploration of ancient cosmologies that sound pretty much like what flat earthers think, and then moving on to Orphism, the supposed ancient Mediterranean mystery cult dedicated to the Greek god hero Orpheus, best known to most of us for sailing with Jason and the Argonauts in the Argonautica epic, and unsuccessfully bringing his dead wife back from Hades. To unpack Eisler's work, we'll talk to a classicist, a philosopher, and an art historian, because Eisler seems to have been all three at the same time. I'm Brian Collins, and this is A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert Eisler. Nothing in Eisler's previous work on value theory or art history gave any indication of the next topic he would venture into. Nonetheless... After several years of familiarizing himself with the most diverse resources, as he puts it in the preface, Eisler produced World Cloak and Sky Canopy, Religious Historical Investigations on the Prehistory of the Ancient Worldview. That's my translation of the German title. Unfortunately, it's never actually been translated into English, and it probably never will be, because it's a massive two-volume history of religious cosmology well over 1,200 pages long. That's pretty big already, and apparently Eisler had continued to insert new material well after the printing began in 1908, slowing down the process and earning him a reputation among the academic presses as something of a difficult man to work with. Eisler was ostensibly studying art history, but he was also interested in a bigger question, namely the origin of Greek philosophy. But to get there, he thinks he has to understand the Greek worldview, literally how they viewed the world. It seems to me that this impulse is connected to the idea that if you want to truly understand Plato, you can't just read his words with a 21st century mindset. You have to read them with a 6th century BCE Athenian mindset, which means trying to get inside his head like an actor preparing for a role. This may not be the best way to describe it, but I'm trying to avoid using German words here like Verstehen and Weltenschwang. In the foreword, Eisler explains how his project, and how his approach to myth and religion generally, is based on his art history teacher Alois Regal's method of worldview reconstruction and what Eisler calls his truly universal historical conception of history.
4: It is precisely the attainment of a deeper and clearer insight into the developmental conditions of the oldest Greek philosophy, the most historically important output in terms of cultural history, which I had hoped for from the beginning of these studies of the oldest cosmologies, and for this alone might have been worth the trouble of dedicating a number of years almost exclusively to dealing with this problem. The first collections of material were still archaeological for art historical purposes, at a time when I had hardly any other task than the more thorough research into the stylistic forms and the presuppositions of the cosmic sacral construction in ancient Near Eastern and Western medieval art, which was intended as a depiction of the whole world a problem to which, even during the university years, the historical outlook of my unforgettable teacher Alois Regal pointed me. Regal, to whom my ambiguous interests between archaeological and philosophical problems were well known, once, upon a discussion of Egypt's cultivated pillar and star-spangled temple ceiling in his rapturous manner, showed, in his subjective way of seeing and remembering all things, but I had the feeling that a new way to the origins of human knowledge had indeed been pointed out over the archaeological area, a thought that appealed to me all the more.
1: Who was Alois Regal? I asked Dr. Michael Gubser, a historian of European intellectual history at James Madison University, to explain what was so important about him.
2: So Alois Regal was a pioneering art historian in the late 19th century. He was born, if I'm remembering, in 1858, I think, and died in 1905. Um, and he was one of the pioneers of the modern discipline of art history, along with Heinrich Wolfmann, a Swiss art historian, around the same time, uh, a little later, Erwin Panofsky. And I mean, I guess Regal, along with some of these other figures, were instrumental in two ways. I mean, one, well, in a few ways. One, they separated out art history from other disciplines that it was a part of. So art history was in part encompassed within history more generally, and alois Regal is one of the figures who makes it into a separate discipline. In addition, studies of art in the late 18th and into the 19th century had often been taken up with questions of connoisseurship. Is, is this good art or bad art? Or questions of who painted this mysterious painting, right? Can we determine its, it's author, its painter? And he asked other questions. He was really interested in how forms progressed forward, how artistic forms evolved over time, and thus was not so interested in questions of good or bad art. So he argued that we shouldn't simply judge art by whether it's good or bad, in part because we're always going to be importing aesthetic categories of our own and of what we assume is good art. I mean, typically art was measured against classical art or Renaissance art. This is good art, and if it didn't match up to that, It wasn't as good. And he argued, you know, this is this is historically improper, right? Because late Rome, for example, or early modern Dutch art simply wasn't trying to be Renaissance art. It was trying for something different. And it's important to judge each of these periods in its own terms. And Regal and Wolflin and others, are really interested in these questions of uh, the progression of forms over time. What is it that is distinctive about the movement of art that separates it from the movement of other things historically and therefore requires a separate discipline?
1: Riegel was also a student of Franz Brentano, who we talked about in the last episode during our discussion on value theory. Brentano was a former Catholic priest and philosopher of mind whose lectures on intentionality and empirical psychology influenced a whole generation of scholars including Edmund Husserl, the father of phenomenology, and Freud, the father of psychoanalysis. His most famous and influential idea was intentionality. I asked Dr. Gubser to explain what that means. You'll be able to hear the connection between this line of thinking and value theory.
2: The idea of intentionality is that there is a connection always between subject and object, between sort of thinker and world. So it, it's not, there's no sort of Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. To think is already to think of something, which means to think is already be con- to be connected to the world, right? You're, think of, you're thinking of something in the world, as it were. And there are lots of debates about what this intentional object is. Is it, is it actually a physical object? Is this something else in the mind?
1: While applying Riegel's Brentano-influenced methods to the history of religions, Isa was influenced by another scholar, Hermann Usener a philologist who was interested in demonstrating how Christian holidays were derived from pagan feasts and Christian saints were based on pagan gods. Nowadays, this is so obvious that we get characters like Robert Langdon in the Dan Brown novels blowing his students' minds by telling them that the feast of Sol Invictus is the real Christmas. Anyway, Weltenmantel, which is the word that I'll use to refer to this book from here on out, is the first word of the German title is in some ways the easiest and in other ways the hardest of Eisler's projects to describe. It is extremely broad in scope, looking at myths and art from Egypt, Mesopotamia, Palestine, India, Persia, and Western Europe. His basic argument is that two distinct and incompatible cosmological systems spread from the Near East into the Hellenic world. One that pictured the vault of heaven held up over the flat earth by a tree or a pillar, and another that pictured the cosmos as a spherical shape. The first of these systems had been dominant for most of history and is now making a comeback with flat earthers on YouTube. But at the time of Ptolemy, it was supplanted by the second model, the spherical model, which was more amenable to a scientific picture of the universe. Belted Mantle's first volume is dedicated to the history of the world cloak, a type of traditional royal garment decorated with a representation of the cosmos. The example that Eisler begins with is the star mantle of Henry II, the last Saxon king of Germany and the Holy Roman Emperor, which was richly embroidered with astrological symbols. Eisler argues that this type of garment reflects an ancient cosmological tradition originating in the Near East, in which the cosmos was understood to be a cloak or a tent woven out of space and time, and the world cloak was worn by kings to show their divine power. The second volume is about the mythical trope of the heavenly canopy, something like a cosmically enlarged version of the world cloak held up by a tree or pillar to form the vault of heaven. Eisler concludes that the heavenly canopy is connected to the starry mantle described in the first volume because the image as a whole represents the marriage of heaven and earth, portraying the king, wearer of that mantle, as the male creator god and the possessor of knowledge of the future. Eisler's project is to trace the progression of these forms through time as a way of understanding the way that thinking itself has changed. Did Greeks believe their own myths? Did the Bronze Age Hebrews think Adam and Eve were real people? Reading the stories don't tell us what people thought about them, but it's possible that the way they visualize the world, as recorded in their artworks, might give us
4: some clues. I see the actual center of the required formal teaching of the religious ideas in the process of visualization to identifying emerging laws, it is indispensable to conduct investigations through whole branchings out of especially fruitful individual images that reach back to the earliest times. This whole series of cosmological myths, which can be easily continued to the hundredth, seems to me to offer the best possible awareness that the long and varied path that these investigations had to take from a world-famous artistic monument of the Western Middle Ages backwards to the beginning of the ancient view of the world. Until the arrival of the Ptolemaic world system, however, the Old and Middle world had a sensuous intuition of the universe, a world view in the strictest sense of the word, through which the general view of all terrestrial events, above all, of the supernatural processes, religion, and the whole illumination of life was essentially determined. The history of this world picture has been sufficiently explored as far as the development of the spherical, or par excellence, of the Ptolemaic system is concerned, but very little elucidated except for the time preceding the rise of the idea of a world or even celestial sphere. It is precisely this oldest period of the Middle Ages culture, whose world picture, as I hope to show, was actually based essentially on the ideal of the world-encompassing starry cloak of the deity, or the heavenly tent set above the world tree with the help of this cosmic ceiling the time in which all the religious creations of this civilization have received their permanent form without any exception. Already with the spherical worldview, the theological systems of antiquity could at most make compromises, think of the strange Olympus in the cosmology of Philolaeus, and have done so completely with the Copernican system, not to mention all relativistic theories of time and space. It is only through the concept of the absolute transcendence of the deity, which is completely unknown in this form of antiquity, that they are able to assert a semblance of the earlier validity for the most urgent tasks that the modern religious history has to solve.
1: Velton Mantle began Eisler's career as a self-trained historian of religions, a career that would soon intersect the lives of other major figures in the study of religion that we will talk about in the next episode. At the time of its publication, responses to the book were generally good, though some reviewers did question the unusually large amount of materials Eisler was drawing on, like this review from the French journal History of Religion's Review.
5: When we reach the end of these two volumes, so dense, so full of facts and ideas, we feel a double impression. It cannot be denied that there is a considerable effort to explain obscure facts and enigmatic documents, to find their origin, to discover their meaning either religious or eschatological or mystical, nor can it be denied that Mr. Eisler has displayed in this work very brilliant qualities, an ingenuity that is clever in turning difficulties, a great flexibility of mind, a subtlety of thought, and a vivacity of dialectic, which cannot be faulted other than to be sometimes excessive. And on the other hand, we are not without worry about the direction taken on the lines which the author follows. We fear constantly to lose our foothold, to wander through digressions or into the labyrinth of ingenious deductions, the reconciliations made through space and time, reckless etymologies, the arguments derived from astrology. All these processes of a science which moves too easily away from the solid ground of strictly historical facts and whose lack of rigor precludes granting solutions formulated by Mr. R. Eisler an indisputable value. If you can
1: read German and you want to see what all the fuss is about, volume one of Welt & Mantel has been scanned and uploaded onto archive.org. I had to buy the second volume online from a dealer in London. The gold embossed seal on the cover indicates that it was bound at a library in Bratwaw, currently in Poland. People used to cite this book a lot, and art historians still do, but they tend to treat it more like an encyclopedia of cosmological images in art and architecture than a lengthy scholarly argument, which is what he meant it to be. Felton Mantle is almost certainly the inspiration for another very ambitious and often derided book about mythology, Hamlet's Mill, by the archaeoastronomers Giorgio de Santillana and Hertha von Deschendt. Now, that's been reprinted at least eight times, translated into multiple languages, and even expanded in later editions. The sprawling references and bizarre tangents in Velton Mantle are only the beginning, but will become the hallmark of Eisler's scholarship. And his next book, Orpheus the Fisher, Comparative Studies in Orphic and Early Christian Cult Symbolism, takes this method in a different direction. Here is the question that motivated Eisler to start comparing the fish symbolism in so-called Orphism, more about that later, with what we find in the Gospels. Why is Jesus so closely associated with fish and fishermen? He walks on the water. He multiplies loaves and fishes to feed his followers. He calls the fishing brothers Simon, Peter, and Andrew to become his apostles by telling them that they will be fishers of men. The Pope wears the fisherman's ring as a symbol of the papacy descended from St. Peter. And of course, the earliest Christian symbol, the one you can still find stuck on the backs of people's cars, is the sign of the fish. But Isaac goes much deeper with all this. For example, he uses a kind of numerology, which he starts to study in mantle, to demonstrate that the name of the bishop of the Eastern Church, Abercius, is a numerological equivalent to ichthys, the word for fish. There are a lot of other connections in Orpheus the Fisher, some more convincing than others. As one German reviewer put it, there are a lot of fruit trees here, but also some shrubs that one is glad to miss. We'll talk more about Eisler's unique and controversial interpretation of early Christianity in later episodes. But now, let's focus on the question of Orphism, beginning with a figure at its center, Orpheus. After the break. <laughs> Since I'm the chair of a department of classics and world religions and I write about mythology, you might think I know something about Orpheus, but I don't. My main interests lie in Indian mythology. But I have done some research for this episode with the help of my colleague, Jim Andrews, so here's what I've learned. Orpheus's mother was the Muse Calliope, and his father was either the god of the sun and music Apollo, or the river god Oyagros, a fact that Eisler cites as evidence of his connection to fishing and the worship of a divine fisher. I put this idea to my colleague, Dr. Vladimir Marchinkov, author of The Orpheus Myth and the Powers of Music.
0: Well, this is Isla's, uh, Isla's thing. Yes, uh, uh, Orpheus and the sea generally is a, is a very important uh, thread in the Orpheus myth. Of course, he's a, he's a member of the Argo team and he's instrumental in the success of the voyage at every uh, decisive moment. For example, the Argonauts cannot push Argo off the shore into the water until Orpheus starts singing. Only after he starts singing, uh, the ship finally budges and moves into the water. And then he, while on the ship, he's setting uh, the rhythm to the rowing. When they uh, break camp on the Black Sea coast, as they, as they travel, they, they, of course, they're they rowing along the coast. That, that's how uh, ancient marinas traveled. And then they uh, find a place and uh, bring him. And a a quarrel breaks out between two boisterous uh, heroes. And uh, Orpheus starts singing uh, Cosmogony. How the world was created. And how after this terrible strife with the Titans, Zeus established the Olympian Order. And everyone understands that Jason is the Zeus of that team. And so he he calms the internal strife uh, within the group.
1: Like Dr. Marchinkov says, Orpheus sailed with Jason and the Argonauts to capture the Golden Fleece, where he helped out his fellow adventurers in two ways. First, he made sure that all the proper sacrifices were made along the way to keep the gods happy. He had a special connection to the gods and was even initiated into the mysteries of foreign gods no one else knew about. But his other talent was music. His official role on the ship was to play his lyre and sing the sea shanties that kept everyone rowing in the same rhythm. But he could also use his musical talents to calm the waves, and he even sang the serpent who guarded the golden fleece to sleep. But what he is best known for is his journey to the underworld. After his wife Eurydice died from a snake bite, he went down to Hades, where he used his singing and playing to bring her shade back up to the earth. It's possible that in some versions of the story, he successfully gets his wife back. But the most familiar ending, which comes from Virgil, is that on the way out of Hades, Orpheus looked back, which he was warned not to do, and Eurydice was lost forever.
0: For the Greeks, he was first and foremost an artist, um, poet and singer, and musician. And his divine inspiration was encoded in the gift of Apollo, the golden lyre. Apollo's golden lyre. Uh, that later on, uh, at the end of the story, it returns to, to heaven as the constellation of the lyre. Those are the primary identities of Orpheus in the ancient world. But already in Plato, we find uh, the story of his uh, journey to Hades to rescue his wife, it's in in, a, in an ironic key. Uh, from which we can speculate, I suppose, that uh, it had existed in a non-ironic key, and uh, Plato was uh, playing with it uh, as he played with many Greek myths in his dialogues. Uh, it's in the symposium, the, the speech of Phaedrus, and Orpheus is mocked as a, as a cowardly lover, not brave enough to face death itself but uh, making his way into Hades by trickery. That for, for Plato, playing music, you know, magical song, uh, he translated that into the trope of trickery and made Orpheus, uh, instead of a divinely inspired uh, singer and uh, prophet, um, made him into a, uh, just a kind of a lowering, a certain lowering, a humorous lowering of the figure. But there are many such things in, in Plato
1: After losing Eurydice, Orpheus swore off all women and introduced the practice of male homosexuality into the northeastern region of Thraci. Thraci, which is now mostly in Bulgaria, was his original homeland. Later, either because of his scorn of women or because he had abandoned the worship of Dionysus, he was attacked by a group of Dionysus' female worshippers called Maenads, who tore him limb from limb in a frenzy. His head apparently fell into a river and floated all the way to Lesbos, where it continued to speak and became an oracle like the one at Delphi. Apart from all of these mythological adventures, Orpheus is also identified as the author of a number of hymns and magical texts. But as we will see, this probably just means that various authors decided to attribute their writings to Orpheus to give them more weight and prestige. Iser is not as much interested in Orpheus himself as he is in Orphic religion or Orphism. We will get more into this later, but nowadays, very few scholars are convinced that there ever was such a thing. While there were texts attributed to Orpheus from at least the time of Plato, there's no real evidence that there was ever any organized religion that was understood as Orphism. Instead, a group of Neoplatonist philosophers in the early Christian centuries, about a thousand years after Plato, seem to have made up Orphism as an ancient religion that had a lot in common with their own beliefs, all in order to connect themselves to the authority of tradition. At the same time, Christians arguing against paganism made Orphism out to be the source of pagan religion so that they could apply their criticisms of supposed Orphic rituals and beliefs to all pagan religions.
3: Our earliest witness is Plato. So 4th century, the Durveni papyrus may be earlier, may be around the same time. So we know that there are texts that people are quoting before that. So 5th century, maybe as far back as the 6th century BCE. The latest texts that are being composed with the name of Orpheus on them are the Orphic Argonautica and the Orphic Hymns, which are being produced somewhere in the 3rd to 5th century CE. So there's a really long span of people composing material in the name of Orpheus. They're really, you know, if you look at the whole span of things, you know, say 5th century BCE to 5th century CE, it's a thousand years in which people are using the name of Orpheus to get a certain cachet to the ideas that they're putting forward. So we find things with the name of Orpheus that have Stoic ideas. We find things that have Aristotelian ideas. We find things that have Neoplatonic ideas. We find things that have Jewish ideas. I mean, the the Testament of Orpheus is a, is a text probably produced by uh, Jews in the Hellenistic period that has Orpheus recanting the worship of multiple gods and talking about how it's all about monotheism. You know, there's a, an interesting sort of play where Orpheus and his son or pupil or maybe father, Musaeus, Musaeus gets identified with Moses. So, boom, you've, you've got Orpheus slotted into the, the Jewish tradition that way. So, Orpheus becomes the pupil of Moses. And suddenly, the oldest figure in the, in the Greek tradition is connected with the oldest figure in the Jewish tradition. And, you know, so the unity of wisdom is complete.
1: That was Radcliffe Edmonds III. third the Paul Shorey Professor and Chair of Greek and Professor of Greek, Latin, and Classical Studies at Bryn Mawr College. He wrote a book about all this in 2013 called Redefining Ancient Orphism, a Study in Greek Religion. Here's him explaining how a straw man created by pagans and Christians so that they could argue against each other became even more real as time passed.
3: So the Neoplatonists are trying to find a a figure that they can sort of hang everything on and say, no, look, we've got a very consistent theology going on here. And the early Christian apologists are taking the same figure in the same texts and saying, look at all of the horrible stuff we've got here. The, the interesting thing is that they both agree on on sort of the nomination of Orpheus as the, the representative of the most ancient Hellenic religious tradition. And so then the later scholarship sort of picks up on this. You know, and the romantics get very excited about, you know, this ancient, authentic kind of tradition. And then in you know, mid-19th century, Lobeck sort of blows a hole in that and says, Bah, this is nothing but this is primitive religion. And the end of at the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, it's the discovery of the gold tablets that really shifts the conversation. And people are saying, look, we've found evidence for Orphism, and we can can now sort of figure out what these religious movements were that informed the formation of Christianity, which is actually what people were most interested in.
1: Here's what Professor Edmonds is referring to. In 1879, Orphism got a big boost when archaeologists excavating tombs in southern Italy started finding little gold tablets that they identified as Orphic. Needless to say, these discoveries kicked scholarship on Orphism into high gear. And that's the level of excitement that was there when Eisler, with his PhDs in economics and art history, inserted himself into the conversation. I asked Professor Edmonds if he had ever come across Eisler's work before, and what he thought of it. I,
3: I looked at Orpheus the Fisher and um, a, a few of his other things, and I, I was looking back after you sent it to me, and his, his little section on what we know about Orpheus and Orphism is it's a perfect encapsulation of that sort of early 20th century perspective, where he's like, everybody knows that there was an Orphic church, it had missionaries, there was these, these ideas, these doctrines. That were being spread by these missionaries, that there were these Orphic theosoi who were like little Protestant churches. And these are the things that now everybody knows and accepts. And pretty much all of those things in the 21st century, nobody would buy or accept at all. This model that Eisler and Machioro and Reinach and some of these others are espousing it's totally unfounded.
1: And so what do they get out of um, making these arguments? I mean, what's the, it's in the service of a larger argument about what kind of a thing religion is and how to study it. But what's the sort of upshot of putting Orphic influence on, on Christian iconography? I would say there are two main things that it gets
3: you from it, that they're looking for. One is the origin of the idea of the immortality of the soul. Right. And there's a sort of where does that come from in Christianity doesn't seem to really be in Judaism. Where where does it come from? It's all over Plato. You know, where is it? Where is it coming from? So the Orphics become the black box that that sort of emerges out of. The other thing that that Orphism serves as is an origin for the idea of original sin. This is really where the the impact of the gold tablets comes in, in particular, because the text of some of those tablets is taken to connect with um, the story of the Titan's dismemberment of Dionysus. And so by a peculiar set of interpretive moves, this idea of the Titan's dismemberment and the creation of mankind from the ashes of the Titans stained with this crime becomes Orphic original sin. And the only way you can get to that is by taking the gold tablets and then bringing in a a peculiar interpretation of a passage in the 6th century CE Neoplatonist Olympiodorus, who is commenting on Plato's Phaedo and the argument about suicide, and he recounts this myth and talks about Orpheus. But Olympiodorus is, is doing some funky stuff here. He's actually taking this myth, which the Neoplatonists love, as an allegory of the movement from one to many, and he's reinterpreting it in an alchemical way, way he's he's got a whole alchemical subtext going on so to take this neoplatonic alchemical chemical reading and say this was the secret doctrine of orpheus all the way through the ages when you put it like that it seems a little weird um but that that is in effect what what they were doing with with this material
1: after he had finished velton his cosmology book Eisler had started working on what he saw as the presence of Orphic symbolism in early Christian art, specifically images of fish and fishermen. Here's how Eisler
4: explains it in the preface. So many are the books and articles which have already been written about the symbolism of the fish in early Christianity and about the cult of this sacred animal and the other pre-Christian religions that it might seem impossible to find out anything new about this subject after the long and diligent researches of predecessors so numerous and so illustrious. Yet, I hope to have opened an entirely new aspect of the question by discussing, as far as I know for the first time, not the cult of the sacred fish itself, but the worship of a divine fisher the rites and the beliefs which the different nations of the ancient world connected with this peculiar mythic figure, and finally the Christian symbolism of the messianic fissure of men, which is indeed entirely different from, and quite independent of, the much-discussed Christian ichthys allegory, of which I have proposed a new, very simple explanation below. This kind of language is pretty typical of Eisler. I think part of the reason
1: why he keeps gravitating to so many new and diverse projects is that he likes to come into a field that has already been pretty well studied and make a name for himself there. And Orpheus was certainly well studied by the time Iser began to write. In fact, the first line of the first chapter of Orpheus the Fisher is, Orpheus is in vogue. Part of this vogue had to do with the fact that scholars believed that so-called Orphism was an ancient form of religion, so that studying it would give you some insight into the development of religion itself. I asked Professor Edmonds what kind of people were interested in studying Orphism and why. It's a pretty odd cast of characters.
3: It's an interesting mix, actually, because there's a lot of anti-clericalism. So you get some weird figures like Vittorio Machiaro, who's pushing against Catholic tradition and writes things like From Orpheus to Paul to sort of explain where Paul gets his mystery cult terminology. And so some of that is picked up by German Protestant ideas. But then again, there's also, there's a reaction where the the sort of ritualism of Orpheus gets sort of repurposed by the other side of the debate that is portraying Christianity as, you know, proto-Catholic and thus ritualized so once again, as, as in, in late antiquity, when the Neoplatonists and the Christian apologists are going at it, where Orpheus becomes an Orf- and, and Orphica become the sort of common ground on which the theological battles are being fought, because everybody are, agrees that Orpheus is the oldest, and therefore the origin from which all of these other things come. So I wouldn't say it's located only in Jewish scholars who are trying to figure out a non-jewish origin for these ideas of christianity but it's picked up by them as well as others um and eisler i didn't you know some of the the that thing you sent me i didn't know about his very peculiar background um and sort of where he fits in between the jewish community and the with Sholem and the 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 christian community yeah that he, he would be an interesting one to locate in, in, in these
1: debates. The popularity of Orpheus and Eisler's day actually went back to the time of the Italian Renaissance, as Dr. Marchinkov explains.
0: What happened with the Orpheus myth in the Renaissance was that it became uh, the central uh, subject for operas. Ottavio Rinucini was the author, the Renaissance Italian poet associated with the Medici, uh, wrote this very famous, very popular poem um, about Eurydice. Tragic poem with a tragic ending. He had enough taste to do it in that that key. And uh, several attempts were made by uh, subsequent uh, musicians, especially in the the late 16th century. And then Monteverdi really creates uh, uh, the first fully successful and especially important for us, published a version of the story, his opera, uh, which he called drama per musica, uh, the genre. And that's how people referred to it. And then uh, there is an explosion in the early 17th century, explosion of opera writing across Europe. And uh, many authors choose Orpheus and Eurydice as their subject. No less than forty of them, I think. So that uh, was a huge resurgence of the, of the myth in musical culture. And then for the Florentine Academy, Orpheus was uh, revived in in full with all the ne- Neoplatonist interpolations on that image. The thing is, Platonists in the late in late antiquity took up Orpheus as one of their central sy- symbols. And then early Christians, of course, borrowed it and then transformed that image of Orpheus into the image of Christ. So when uh, Ficino and his uh, fellow Florentines were reviving the story, they were already borrowing a very well-developed philosophical symbol uh, built into a sophisticated uh, system of, of concepts but at the same time retaining its mythical, symbolic nature.
1: Eisler actually published his first article on Orpheus in 1909, before Velton Mantle even came out. The article appeared in The Quest, a journal published by Eisler's friend, the former theosophist G.R.S. Mead, who we will learn more about in a later episode. And in 1908, Eisler had lectured on Orphism at the Third International Congress of the History of Religions at Oxford. In the audience was John M. Watkins, the famous London esoteric bookseller, who would eventually publish Eisler's first book in English, Orpheus the Fisher, based on the essays he had published in The Quest. The book was actually
4: done in 1914, but the outbreak of World War I kept it from being published. As the paper and printing betray at first sight, this book had been printed and almost finished before August 1914. The enlarged and illustrated edition in book form... Of the long series of papers which I have been allowed by the editor's kindness to contribute to the quest from 1910 to 1914, was about to be published when the fatal war began that finally buried the author's native land, the ancient Rome of the Habsburgs, under the ruins of an unfortunate Oriental policy. Having done his military duty in the first line until the day of his complete disablement in 1917, the author was allowed to return to his peaceful research work and to wait patiently for the day when the old international relations of friendly competition would be resumed in a spirit of reconciliation. Beginning in 1914, Eisler served as an officer in Austria-Hungary's
1: 59th Archduke Rainer Infantry Regiment. They fought first on the Russian front and later on the Italian, ending the war in South Tyrol. For his bravery in combat, Eisler was awarded the silver medal and was made a knight of both the Order of Francis Joseph and the Iron Cross. As I said in the last episode, the fact that I knew this about him, it's in his author bio for Man and a Wolf, made the story about his misadventure in Udine that much harder to understand. But returning to his work, it's worth noting that the main supporters of Eisler's writing on Orphism were not his old Austrian teachers but the mystically-minded former theosophist G.R.S. Mead, the publisher of The Quest, and a bookshop owner who was a friend of the magician Alistair Crowley, who supposedly made all the books in his bookstore disappear and then reappear, and Madame Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy. Eisler continued to write articles for The Quest on many subjects for as long as it was published. And for the October 1914 issue, he wrote a piece called Recent Experiments in Clairvoyance, which I can't locate, unfortunately. The document tests performed on two professed psychics. This appears to have been Eisler's only foray into psychical research. I asked Professor Edmonds why people like Meade and Watkins might have been so interested in this project, and it turns out that one of the big proponents of Orphism in England was Thomas Taylor, who was a pretty interesting guy. He was a proponent of animal rights. He conversed with his wife only in classical Greek, and his writings were a big influence on the Romantic poets, as well as the Theosophists and other mystical groups.
3: focus is something that is picked up by the like the Cambridge Platonist Thomas Taylor right he he is recycling the Neoplatonic version of Orpheus right as the most ancient wisdom and so those claims I imagine are the ones that are being picked up by the theosophists and Crowley and you know because there's all of this interesting ritual practice stuff that is associated with Orpheus that, if you're Crowley and those types, you you want to make use of.
4: When I first published in 1908, in a paper read before the Third International Congress of the History of Religions in Oxford, the conjectural new etymology of the name Orpheus, which forms the starting point of the following work— I was quite confident that by pursuing this hypothesis into all its consequences, I should find out a great many hitherto overlooked points of contact between early Christianity and paganism, or that I should at least be able to throw new light on other such points, which had been noticed before but not satisfactorily explained until now. I believe that indeed that anticipation has come true. But, on the other hand, I have certainly been deceived in my expectations of discovering early, extensive, and important pagan influences on the initial form of Christian ritual and cult symbolism. In 1908, I was still under the illusion, which I am afraid is even today cherished by many students of comparative religion, that primitive Christianity was, to a great extent, a syncretistic religion. In particular, I had been strongly impressed by the statement of Eichhorn and other scholars that we must look out for a pagan, or, more exactly, an oriental prototype for the Eucharist, since a sacramental, not to speak of, a theophagic rite is unknown to the Jewish cult system. This apparently plausible syllogism-induced, or rather seduced me to build up an elaborate hypothesis about the plausible connection between the obviously sacramental eating of fish and bread and the pericope on Jesus feeding the multitude and the hypothetically reconstructed cult ritual of the prehistoric Canaanian bread and fish or fish and corn god. A paper on this subject, which should originally have been included as a special chapter in the present volume, a now meaningless reference to it could not be effaced in the text of page 49, note 1, was also read in Oxford, privately printed and distributed to a great many members of the Congress. I hope that none of these copies survive today, for I very soon came to the conclusion that the objections which von Dopschutz strausberg raised against that hypothesis in the discussion following my lecture were perfectly justified, I had to give up the greater part of this premature construction, and I am perfectly convinced now that the Eucharistic rite arose out of a purely Jewish ritual. That there are pagan parallels to the later developments of it into a mystic theophagy can scarcely be denied. But I do not believe any more that pagan influences were at work in the initial stage of Christian origin.
1: Eisler later wrote that this was only meant to be the first volume of a two-volume work, and that his position would have become clear in the second volume, which was never published. You'll remember that in the previous episode of this podcast, Eisler's friend Meyer tried to convince the Italian judge to take it easy on him, because Eisler was very close to discovering the origin of mythology. There's no evidence that the judge took this into account for sentencing, but Meyer was probably referring to the research Eisler was doing for Velton Mantle. However, nowhere in that book or any other does he claim to have found the origin of myth. In fact, as his self-correction in the preface to Orpheus the Fisher, and some other incidents we'll get to later, suggest, Isaac seemed to be less interested in finding answers than he was in finding questions. By the way, after abandoning his attempt to connect early Christian rituals like the recreation of the Last Supper to Orphism, he decided that the bread Jesus broke with his disciples at the Last Supper was actually the Afikoman, the piece of unleavened bread routinely eaten at the end of a Passover meal. Eisler published his fullest account of the Afikomen theory in a two-part German article that appeared in 1925 and 1926 issues of the Journal of New Testament Studies and the Customs of the Early Church. After the first half of the article came out, the editor, a Protestant church historian named Hans Lietzmann, decided that Eisler's thesis was wrong and refused to print the second half. So Eisler hired a lawyer and sent a registered letter to Leitzman threatening a lawsuit if the article were not published, and further legal consequences if he published it, but somehow made it known to readers that he was being forced to do so. Leitzman seemed to give up the fight, but when the second part of Eisler's article came out in 1926, it was preceded by an introduction from Leitzman undercutting Eisler's argument, and followed by a critique from the Jewish scholar Arthur Mommerstein. Eisler then demanded space in the next issue to publish his counterargument, but Leesman refused, and instead printed a short explanation of the whole affair for his readership, concluding that after these events, further scholarly contact with Dr. Eisler is no longer possible for me. I'll give Professor Edmonds the last word about Eisler's Orpheus the Fisher.
3: Eisler's arguments about Orpheus the Fisher and and you know the way he plays with the, the imagery is a fascinating sort of game of associations, right? I and mean, he's really good at that. Again, he's one of the people who's doing all sorts of things to make these connections, to, to link Orpheus to the development of Christian imagery in as many different ways as possible, as far as I can tell. So much of the Orphic material, like almost all of it, exists only in fragments which is just an invitation to fill in the blanks. And so that's what people do, is they fill in the blanks. And in the early 20th century, they're filling in the blanks with the models that they know best. right? The assumptions that he made were that the texts and rituals that were connected with Orpheus were representative of an Orphic church of an Orphic community of believers that had uh, a set of doctrines um, and, a, and a, a religious organization that persisted over time and space. The, the correct way, I would argue, that one needs to look at these pieces of evidence is to see the name of Orpheus as a label that various people are putting on rituals and texts to give them The authority of antiquity in the name of of Orpheus. Um, And so there's really no consistency that unites the ideas in these texts. And there is no evidence that there was ever any Orphic community or Orphic church. Now, this is a place where um, I will admit, I'm still um, arguing against various uh, other scholars, other scholars who see despite the fact that they'll agree there was no community, they still say, well, people put the name of Orpheus on these texts because it had certain ideas. I think that's still a mistake. I think there are still too many inconsistencies. Yes, to some extent, right, the fact that Orpheus's name is associated with one text means that when somebody else is trying to forge his own text with the name of Orpheus on it, He's going to pick up elements from the older one and recycle them and reuse them. And so there will be points of contact. But I don't never think there was anything that could be described as a sort of doctrinal criterion for putting the name of Orpheus on something. As with many of those things, if you picked up Orpheus the, the Fisher, you would find a wealth of references to primary sources. Right, which you could then go and look at on your own, I would say please don't import the idea. Don't take what he says they mean to be what they they meant in their, their context, their historical context. But as with so many of those guys, they had such a wealth of sources. They could quote so many different things. They could take so many pieces of the puzzle and put them together. But, right, the picture that they're trying to put them together to make is a totally, I I think, erroneous one. But if you're missing enough pieces, you can take a piece of a puzzle and say, look, this comes into something that looks like this. This is what the picture on the box should look like. And we would say, no, no, that from our 21st century perspective, we say, no, the box the picture on the front of the box looked nothing like that you know i'm sure that in a hundred years people will talk about the scholarship of orphism in the late 20th early 21st century and say ah they were filling in the blanks with the models that they knew best right which uh, from our perspective we can't really see those right now but i'm sure they'll be making the same kind of arguments about us so
1: after he made a name for himself as a historian of religions with Velton and, and Orpheus the Fisher, Iser began to move in the same circles as people who would later become giants in the field and would be remembered long after Eisler had been forgotten. In the next episode, we will follow him to Paris, where he takes a post as a diplomat only to be swiftly disowned by his own government, then starts lecturing on a startling new vision, literally, of the historic Jesus, and gets into conflicts and controversies with heavy-hitting Jewish scholars Gershom Scholem and A.B. Varberg. I'd like to thank my guests for this episode, Michael Gubser, Radcliffe Edmonds, and Vladimir Marchinkov. For this episode, the voice of Robert Eisler was provided by Caleb Crawford, with additional voices by Brian Evans. Throughout the podcast, I have received assistance with engineering, recording, and editing from March Wesolesky and Logan Marshall. The music is Shivalet Baseda, recorded by Eliakum Shapira and his Israeli orchestra. Partial funding has been provided by the Ohio University Humanities Research Fund and the Ohio University Honors Tutorial College Internship Program. Please join us again next week for another episode of A Very Square Peg, a podcast about Robert
0: Eisler. <laughs> Wer hat darin mich jemals war, a schemisch getemperte nice Zahn. Oh, rohayor, shohor benig pari, kam ein beschlag war,